This is Nursing Australia Week, a week of entertainment, education and energy for all Australian nurses. Proudly presented by APNA, the Australian Primary Healthcare Nurses Association, Health Workforce Queensland, New South Wales RDN and Northern Territory PHN. Hello, it's Tuesday lunchtime and welcome back to Nursing Australia Week. I'm Matt St. Ledger. This lunchtime, we have an education interview with the COVID-19 Evidence-Based Guidelines Task Force on the latest evidence-based treatments for COVID-19. Suzanne Blackaby caught up with the Executive Director, Steve McLaughlin. Steve, thank you so much for your time today to give us a bit of insight into the work that you do with the National COVID-19 Clinical Evidence Task Force. It's a really long name. We love long names, don't we, in this country for, for all these different branches trying to get us through the pandemic. Now, we're hearing at APNA and lots of other nursing organisations that we work with, some pretty widespread concerns from nurses who are getting really tired. They're fatigued and they kind of know that there's another huge workload on the horizon as the country opens up. You're working with teams of health professionals, including nurses in the ICU. How are you managing and supporting your nursing workforce as this workload stuff just keeps coming at them? Oh, look, it's a good question. So, look, it's been a really busy time. I think the country probably hasn't been thankful enough to the healthcare workforce, especially the nursing colleagues that have done so much work over the last really nearly two years now. Uh, so where I work at, in my day job is at the Alfred Intensive Care where I'm director there. So we have had up to 70 patients in ICU, which is a lot, obviously, much more than has been done in Australia before. Mm. And obviously the you know, the majority, majority of that workload falls to our nursing colleagues with our one-to-one nursing model and all the other supports that are needed to look after these really difficult patients. So it's fair to say, I think our team at Alfred is an example. The nurses are really proud of what they've done, but you're not wrong to say people are tired. They've worked through, you know, two years uh, of very hard work. And obviously we're all part of the community as well. So that in Victoria has meant, you know, six lockdowns of which two of them were, were extremely long uh, with a lot of limitations on people's personal lives as well. So I guess it's highlighted, at a, at a big picture level, it's highlighted a lot of work that has to get done around capacity building for nursing staff in Australia and I think improving conditions and making it a extremely attractive job because we clearly need more nursing staff uh, in the workforce. Uh, and I've, I'm obviously selfish. I'm obviously thinking about intensive care nurses, but that's going to be right across the workforce as well, really. in I think the value of nursing staff has never been higher than it is now. Uh, you know, at a more sort of local level, and what have we been trying to do, I guess... We've been trying to look for the evidence of what we can do to help people. I mean, flexible working is obviously something we can try and do as much as possible. So there's been a lot of work done around flexible hours. There was a lot of lobbying for the state government to introduce a surge payment for people working in in intensive care, which has been introduced now, which is a daily shift allowance, which it's not a large amount, but over time adds up and hopefully is a sort of recognition of the work that's done. Simple things that I think help people and we've been keen on. I've, done it. I've lost count of how many uh, we've actually done, but obviously we buy meals for everyone every day in ICU, for example, water and meals and all those other simple things that are done. And I guess we're now trying to move on to the next level of providing more in-house psychological support and things such as that. And really, I think the main thing is really being open and receptive to feedback from staff because we've looked at a lot of ways to increase our mm. Workforce. So, and a good example probably was early on. We obviously many units use sort of a PPE spotter or monitor model to make everybody safe. And early on, we use nurses for that role. They're excellent at it, obviously. But now we use non-clinical spotters because the nurses were finding it hard, saying, "Well, I want to be do my normal job, which I'm really good at." And we've got other people now who are excellent as well. So, trying to guess be flexible and listen to people's feedback and try and provide a better working environment. But it has been really hard, and I guess. 
you don't get many opportunities to thank all the nursing colleagues as much as maybe on this podcast. So that's something we have to do is thank everyone. But it doesn't probably uh, excuse the amount of hard work everyone's had to do. And I think everyone is a little bit nervous about what the next couple of years are going to look like. Yeah, agreed. And that's certainly what we're hearing. You know, the the big takeaway there for me from what you said is um, flexibility and feedback. The nursing workforce is the largest healthcare workforce in the country, but we don't always have the loudest voice. It's something as an organisation um, we try to input into as much as we can. You know, one of my colleagues often says, if we don't have a seat at the table, well, we'll just drag a chair up and push our way in. And we have done that on occasions and particularly around issues of supporting nurses through the pandemic. Feedback, I love that you're open to feedback from all your staff. And and you mentioned the non-clinical staff that are taking up extra roles as well. I'm from a primary care background, so I'm brutally aware of the, the toll the pandemic has taken on front desk staff in general practice on the admin support and the non-clinical support in our AMSs and ARCHOs around the country. It's, it's been huge. And um, something else that's been really challenging for nurses across all the different settings, but particularly in the vaccine space, is the vaccine hesitancy that we've seen around COVID vaccine. Um, it's been much more prevalent than it ever has been before with any other vaccines we've tried to roll out, but then this is a completely unique situation. I'm interested to know that, you know, vaccine hesitancy and and sometimes vaccine refusal, does that sentiment translate to if these people get COVID, are they refusing treatment or hesitant to accept treatment if they do become unwell and require the outpatient treatment or they're in hospital? That's a really good question. We're starting to see some effects now of, as obviously the population has changed. So look, it was incredibly sad, I guess, to go back at the, into the middle of this year because we definitely were having patients, that, well, I can think of a couple of patients who were waiting for their vaccine. You know, they had appointments booked and then they got sick with COVID and that was pretty horrendous to hear those stories. It is changing now to people that are, we're getting a few vaccinated people through intensive care, but very few. It just demonstrates just how effective the vaccine is. And then unvaccinated staff. It's a challenging situation for us as clinicians because I'm sure your colleagues are the same. You know, part of our job is not to judge, really, because, as you know, many people that need healthcare, including all of us, sometimes do things that, you know, end up with us needing healthcare. that are decisions that we all make in our lifestyles. And so most patients we found are no different in that regard. They've made a decision about their lifestyle and then they accept the treatment that comes and they don't really mention too much around vaccine or anything once they come to hospital. They just want the best treatment possible. We have had some interesting questions around alternate therapies and treatments uh, and, you know, being part of the guideline task force has been useful for that because obviously we have a good evidence base to fall back on. Personally, I haven't found that. That's something that always comes in intensive care um, and maybe it's an interesting environment from that point of view because families are pretty desperate when you get to intensive care. So it's not actually unreasonable to Mm. say, can we try one of these experimental therapies when things are going as tough as they are? So it's been helpful that we, with COVID having so much literature behind it, it's been reasonable. And look, there are definitely some stories around uh, of patients really not accepting the disease at that sort of extreme end of, of, of their interpretation of what's happening. And that's always a challenge. I, I would tell people that it's, it's a pretty small number, but obviously those sort of discussions are really challenging. Um, most patients are still very grateful for the therapy they're getting and the treatment they can get. And like anyone, any one of us would just be scared about you know, how sick they've got uh, at the time. I guess I'm mindful that we're going to see more people um, in the community with mild or moderate COVID disease who are going to, in some cases, require some treatment in the community. So it's great that, you know, treatment refusals 
are really few and far between in the hospital setting. But we're going to see some of that soon too, I think, um, in other places that nurses mm. work in. So how do you actually tackle that difficult conversation? What are some of your tips and tricks that we can learn from? Oh, it's a tough one, isn't it? It's a really good question. I, I think from our experience, mm. obviously, uh, trying to translate from sort of critical care, we do have lots of tricky conversations all the time. We find generally that most situations, time is the best thing. Uh, now, sometimes you have time and sometimes you don't, obviously, but... I guess our approach is trying to be curious as to what the person's reasons are and why are they concerned and what is... And, and many people uh, in that sort of logical discussion will, will change their views or a compromise can be, can be made that is mutually beneficial to the caregiver and the patient. Uh, and we find that and it's time-consuming, but it's, you know, the person's rights to ask questions the same as we have the right to be curious and try and find out if we can help things. Now, obviously, I think one of the important things that you're sort of getting at is most jurisdictions or places that are providing care are going to have to work out what they're going to do if somebody just flatly refuses. And that's going to happen. And there are, there are going to be, like in anything, there are going to be people that refuse. And we see that already, you know, mm-hmm. with normal hospital care, for example, people that refuse to come into hospital, discharge against medical advice, those things, and having those processes in place. And if you're working in somewhere where that might be something you're faced with, I think it's really important that you talk to your organisation that you're working for to say, what is our plan if this happens? Because it, it, it probably will happen in most areas. But it'll be rare, but knowing what you're going to do in that situation would be important because it's very important that, I guess I feel very strongly that healthcare providers should never put themselves at risk. And so that's the key thing is you have your own safety from the organisation you're working for, recognising that most people with normal conversation and discussion will, a compromise can be met, but the odd time that your own safety clearly has to take priority. Yeah, definitely. So we've seen a bit of a flurry of activity around approvals and treatments and medications coming into play. Can we talk a little bit about what's currently available and what medications and treatments that we're using now? So when patients are in hospital, they're already receiving drugs like the steroids and immune modulating agents. And I know that that can then potentially have an impact on when they can be vaccinated once they've recovered. Can you give us a bit of a picture of where we are with um, some of the newer treatments coming into play in the hospital space? Yeah, so it's been an interesting year this year. So last year for the sort of, it was called the second wave in Victoria and, you know, smaller waves around Australia, there really wasn't much treatment at all, basically. We used time as the main factor. And the outcomes in Australian hospitals were still pretty good, actually, which I guess shows that, you know, at the end of the day, it is a virus that, you know, we know that most people that have got intact immune systems can clear a virus and will recover. Uh, but this year is, I guess, a bit more exciting. There's been a few trials now released of some older drugs that come into use and then some newer or reclassified drugs, I guess you'd call it. So dexamethasone or steroids, I guess, is one that there was a big trial in the UK and now a number of other trials that have demonstrated a benefit for people that are a little bit sicker coming into hospital on oxygen or even needing mechanical ventilation. And I guess that wasn't a surprise. There was a suspicion that that was a drug that might help as an anti-inflammatory type condition. So that's been pretty widely used now. And then, as you mentioned, there's some immune modulators like tacaluzumab and baricitinib, and I do struggle to say all these drugs because they've got terrible names, as we said before, but um, that are used now in hospital as well that have got some evidence behind them, which is exciting, and there's, you know, improve the outcomes for patients, especially at the more critical end. Uh, there hasn't been a lot more movement in that space at the critical end moving forward, but I guess we're looking more and more for... Uh, there's now trials going on about, you know, do we do more steroids? There was one recently released it changing the dose, which wasn't particularly exciting in its findings, but it's just suggesting that people are trying to now look at more nuanced responses to treatment for critically ill patients, which is quite useful. 
People, I, I don't mind saying that one of the challenges with intensive care is there isn't as much evidence as maybe we would like for some things. But it's with COVID, I think we have to congratulate some of the bigger research groups around the world that really did move quickly to get some of these trials up and running pretty quickly, which means now we have got some evidence around what drugs to use um, for these conditions, which we're starting to, to see now. So at the critical care end, we've got a few drugs that have made a difference. Some of the antiviral drugs... Um, remdesivir was a drug that got a lot of publicity uh, later last year mm. and that's still in use um, probably hasn't had a great effect in terms of outcomes as much as other things have had but still the drug that's used uh, regularly in hospitals and most systems around Australia have got uh, sort of treatment pathways now so I guess as in, the ta in my task force job I guess we try and provide really comprehensive and uh, expert reviews of the evidence and then that's translated into sort of treatment pathways within hospitals or, or jurisdictions healthcare jurisdictions. Steve, we've heard a bit about Ronoprev recently. Can you tell me where we're sitting with that in treatment? So, look, Ronoprev's a pretty exciting drug. It's only very recently been approved. Uh, it's got reasonable evidence around prophylaxis for post-exposure for people and also around in sort of minimally symptomatic treatment early on for people to try and prevent uh, progression to severe disease. So that's pretty exciting. It's only just the recommendations have just come out now. And obviously the way drugs work in Australia is obviously have clinical recommendations, which things like the task force are part of, but also the TGA, which obviously approves drugs for safety and indications as well. And that's also been approved by the TGA, which is pretty exciting, I guess, as a new drug. And so that's now a couple of drugs that are available in the minimally symptomatic or people that aren't in hospital yet. And I guess that's an exciting thing because obviously we want to prevent patients getting sick at all. Vaccine's the best way to do that. But if we can stop people needing a hospital, that's even better uh, in terms of longer-term outcomes for them as well. So hopefully those drugs run approved, like you said. And then citrovimab, uh, which is a, a drug that was released a little bit earlier, has also been used in that space as well, which is pretty exciting for patients. Yeah, so we're already seeing in our local health pathways, referral pathways for people at high risk of developing severe disease. And like you said, in some cases needing that prophylaxis if they've got a household contact and they themselves are are particularly vulnerable. Will Ronoprev be similar? Do you think that it will be something that's delivered in, as an outpatient or is it going to be in a hospital-only kind of setup? Yeah, look, what, what, it's an interesting space at the moment because what's happened over the last couple of months is we've gone from having no treatments to now potentially there's going to be, you know, two or even three treatments. People would have heard about Molnupiravir, which is also coming hopefully mm -hmm. into 2022 probably, which is another drug that's been released in the same similar patient context, which is an oral drug. So the, the next step, obviously, now one thing we have to remember is the evidence is that these drugs haven't really been compared to each other. So they're all recommended in at-risk patients. Uh, as we all know, COVID-19 has quite a different uh, risk profile for different patients. So people, some people are at a very low risk of developing complications, children being the best example of that. Fortunately, very few children have ended up significantly unwell from COVID-19 in Australia, right through to people that are older or more vulnerable that are quite high risk. So there's going to be a number of drugs now available for people in that high risk group. So we're going to have at least, it looks like three drugs that will be approved for that uh, and available in time. And then we're going to have to work out at an organisational level, you know, which, which drug is recommended and how do we give that and what's the practicalities of giving those drugs as well. I think people would agree that some control over those drugs is going to be useful because especially as they're not, they're, they're not recommended for everyone, they're really recommended for people with risks of deterioration. And so I think Australia's got a good history in the past of making sure the right people get the right drug. Yeah, definitely. And I'll point our listeners today to the website that actually has some specific flowcharts and pathways around some of the groups in our community that 
have slight variations to recommendations. So there's pathways there around children and adolescents, pregnant and breastfeeding women, um, who prophylaxis is appropriate for. So we'll put a link in the show notes of this episode uh, so everybody can grab a hold of those. So I guess, you know, it's a confusing space. There's a lot going on and, you know, mainstream media sometimes is helpful, sometimes not so much with the information that comes out. Nurses are pretty excited about oral treatments um, becoming available. Obviously, it just lowers the complexity of delivery and monitoring and people can take it at home. And I think it's probably important that um, we talk a little bit about the timelines with the antivirals. Even as we're moving into this stage of opening up and the majority of the population is vaccinated, testing and testing and testing and testing and testing is still really important, right? Because for these antiviral drugs, we're on a bit of a bit of a clock if they're going to be useful for those vulnerable people in community and prevent severe disease. Can you tell us a bit about how that works? Yeah, so you're right. And it's become, with, with the way the drugs are worked out, to be honest, and these are obviously uh, drugs that are newly developed that have gone through you know, very vigorous investigation, but it's all been done pretty quickly. So there's slight variations. So for Ronoprid, for example, you really want to treat someone within seven days of the onset of symptoms. And as we've all know, I mean, I'm sure everybody who's listening to this has had a COVID test in the last year. I've had too many to keep track of now. You know, you know, when did you start? Symptoms can be pretty vague for any illness, any viral illness that people are getting. And people that get COVID say the same thing, that, you know, the symptoms can start pretty vaguely and... I know in the hospital we actually have a bit of trouble working out when did the person's symptoms start. So that's really important, I think. Mm. And for citrovimab, they talk about five days from onset of symptoms. So that also does put a little bit of pressure on um, how we're going to deliver these drugs, as you say, and how we're going to look at them from a practical point of view. And I think in Australia, with our good health networks in um, metropolitan areas, that's obviously something we can look at quite well, but it's going to be a big challenge in regional and rural areas to make sure we can get access to these drugs pretty quickly for people. And you can imagine around the world this is proving a big problem. I mean, Australia's got one of the world's most advanced healthcare systems. Many countries don't have the same systems as we do. So there's a, there's a big worry, I guess, to change tack a little bit that this, you know, the, the disease of COVID has always been one that's sadly preferentially affected people that are more vulnerable and with less access to um, socioeconomic advantage. And these drugs are a little bit at risk of that as well. In Australia, though, I think more and more the coordination around how we're giving these drugs is getting better and better. I know the federal government's doing a lot of work around providing ideas and frameworks for people as well about getting access to health advice and being linked into a pathway. And I know New South Wales and Victoria, because we've been in such a... Um, well, Victoria, I know, because we've been in... We're so good at doing lockdowns and getting involved in COVID things. There's quite a lot of work being done on pathways and making sure people are linked into a care provider uh, very early on. So the Living with COVID Task Force is now being stood up. Um, they've been in action for a couple of weeks now and are looking closely at how that bigger picture of coordination of care between um, hospital, primary care, and I think you touched earlier on a really important point is um, the rural and regional and remote areas of Australia. And we've already seen that some of these areas were very slow to get supply of vaccine. How are we going to not let this happen again with treatment and drugs? What's the task force and the Living with COVID task force looking at to try and make sure that these treatments are equally accessible no matter where you live in this country? Oh, look, it's a really good point. It's something I feel really strongly about. Before I worked in Melbourne, I used to work for flying doctors up in Cairns and in Darwin for quite a long time and in rural communities. I'm not never quite sure, my wife and I, how we ended up in Melbourne. But anyway, that's we are now in a big city. So it is really important. And I guess the health equity across the country is something that we really have to focus on, uh, whether that's giving 
you know, making sure we've got vaccine, uh, whether it's drugs or even clinical scenarios and advice. Just in the last couple of weeks, we've done sort of seminars with the Northern Territory colleagues just around care for COVID patients so that we can make sure we've handed over all the advice and things we've learnt over the last uh, 18 months in Victoria. The task force is working quite closely with the Living With COVID group. And I think it's really important. I mean, I guess in terms of our lane as the, as the task force, it's really to be across that early decisions around the evidence and getting the expert groups to look at the evidence as quickly as possible. And I guess that's the big change from previously, if you look at other conditions in Australia, so, or even around the world where you know normal guideline turnarounds can be years, literally, um, in terms of summarising evidence. It's only really been in the last sort of three or four years this living guideline uh, type model has started to work. So I guess our lane as the task force is really to try and make sure we get the evidence through as quickly as possible so that our colleagues that are involved in that operational side or trying to get drugs as quick as possible whenever the stumbling blocks or the evidence is there and people can focus on those other parts of uh, healthcare delivery. And then hopefully we're working closely with the Living With um, COVID group and others to advocate really strongly for health equity. And I think there's there's good recognition of that in Australia now that there is uh, we are a high risk of health inequality because of the nature of our geography and socioeconomic situation. So pushing that really hard from our point of view and hopefully making recommendations. Uh, I know as part of the task force, obviously we've got a wide representation to make sure we don't inadvertently make a recommendation that would be uh, hard to hard to use in a, in, a, in a different sort of environment. So we have representatives from rural and regional and many states obviously on the task force for that exact purpose, which is really important. Yeah, definitely. I guess you know, a great big shout out to our rural and remote nursing workforce. They often work alone or in very small teams and they don't always have access to, to that specialist advice, I guess. And our nurse practitioners who often work independently as well. But what they do do is have really great relationships with the people that they care for and really great relationships in the community where they work and live. Yeah, so I'm going to I'm going to shout out to you to let the task force know, don't leave them out of the conversation. There's a a network in the hardest to reach places that are already doing amazing things and and they're they're telling us. They're ready to stand up and do what they need to do in the in the fight in this pandemic as well. We advocate here at Apna for nurses to always be able to work to their top of scope of practice and it's never been more important if we're going to keep that equity to access treatment and vaccines and every other part of the fight in this pandemic. We don't have crystal balls. We're not quite sure exactly what's happening next. I did ask the modelling guy the other day about that and, you know, he wouldn't tell me exactly, darn it. But Oh, no, I totally agree. Like, and I guess my past experience in working in regional areas that the nursing staff up there are truly incredible and very inspiring. And I'm sure there's, uh, you know, understandable anxiety about COVID because it does keep throwing up twists and turns. And as you sort of imply, you know, we have a very high vaccination rate in Australia now in, in some parts, but not everywhere. So there's going to be some challenges ahead. So I remember being told a statistic once, they're some of the most, the most remote clinics in the world, staffed by, you know, nursing staff, mm. uh, not just in Australia. So, you know, it's quite an incredible undertaking that, that they do for us all. Steve, I've, my experience personally is largely in the, in the primary care space um, most recently and very aware that that's a totally different perspective than what you see in ICU and our, what our ICU nurses and critical care nurses are, are seeing. So at, at the peak, at its worst, what does the ICU look like? Oh, look, you I mean one of the reasons I'm such a strong advocate for vaccination and treatment is that I've seen how brutal this disease can be. If you're unlucky, like obviously it's a minority of people that are unlucky, but 
We've had at our ICU, we've had people in, uh, in ICU for over 100 days on ventilators or on ECMO, like the heart-lung bypass machine. So it's pretty incredible disease. Now, people do recover. Obviously, we're doing that because we think people will recover. And, but I guess for the patients, it's a, it's a horrendous disease if they get to that level because you can imagine it's a disease of respiration and, and your lung, so it's a tough recovery. Visitation to hospitals has been really limited. So mm. when people have got the infectious part of COVID, which is usually the first two or three weeks in hospital, there's no visitors. But even after that, there's been very limited visitation in Victoria, which is really hard. For the staff, it's really, it's a bit unusual. I mean, I think in intensive care, most people go into intensive care uh, for certain reasons, one of which is we like the resuscitation and the early management of critically ill patients. And always a really enjoyable part of the job has been that, you know, the longer illnesses and the slow recoveries and things and seeing people get better. But this is pretty extreme, up to 100 days or even longer. So it really has tested the resilience and the, um, the, the way we manage ourselves in ICU to look after patients for that long and really to have the patients with the patient and their family to say, look, this might get better. We really need to give it more and more time. Uh, so I guess I want to sort of thank all the nursing colleagues involved in that because it is a really tough ride to sit with those patients for so long. And you can imagine over those 100 days, there's a lot of ups and downs and a lot of times when people really nearly get to the end before they, they start to rally forward. So... It's been really tough for that. I think in terms of the degree of life support for people, uh, we've had at the most, I think, 22 or 23 patients on ECMO at the Alfred, which is you know, more than double than has been done before. And there were similar numbers in New South Wales spread around a few hospitals. So that's a lot of people needing that level of support, uh, much more so than we've seen in other, other years in Australia. So, and that, again, requires a whole sort of multidisciplinary level of expertise from the team, the medical team, nursing team. At the Alfred, for example, we run a nursing model of ECMO, so the nurse... You know, the ICU, as everyone probably know, listen to the podcast, is one-to-one -one nursing. At the Alfred, it's one-to-one -one nursing whether you have an ECMO machine or not. So it's, it's a pretty tough day um, for the nursing team. They do an amazing job and show an amazing uh, degree of skill and uh, expertise managing those patients. Yeah, 100 days. I, I did not know that. That's tough. No. That's a really, really long time. I guess hats <laughs> off to, to all your team. Thank you. Are you new to primary healthcare and feeling a little lost? APNA's Transition to Practice program may be perfect for you. A 12-month program that ensures that you start your primary healthcare nursing journey with the support you need. Click the Transition to Practice program link in the show notes for more information. And that's it for Tuesday's episode. Also, don't forget to enter our Spill Your Guts competition. Today, we were asking you about the weirdest item you've ever removed from a patient. And uh, I, for one, can say there's been a few. You can text us on 0417366831 or simply flick us an email at education at apna.asn.au. Uh, and of course, please maintain patient confidentiality. The winners will be announced this afternoon. We'll see you this evening. Thanks for listening to Nursing Australia Week, a week just for you. For more information, visit APNA at www.apna.asn.au.